whenever the New Testament speaks about how we are to live as Christians, very, very often, in fact, most of the time, it speaks about how we are to live as Christians in the context of a local church. And we'll see why that's really important in Ephesians. So lots of practical applied teaching on Sunday nights this term, which we hope as preachers will be helpful to us. And one of the other things we're going to do in this series is take our time to work carefully and slowly through these chapters, often just with a few verses at a time. So for example, next Sunday, chapter 4, verses 1 to 6, just a very few verses. It's good for us to slow down from time to time with God's Word. Now, there is a big problem, though, about starting in chapter 4. And uh, guess what the answer is? We miss out chapters 1 to 3. Now, why is that a problem? Well, if the second half of the letter is full of instruction about how we are to live, and if you read it, it's full of do this and don't do this and don't live that way now, live this way now, and that kind of teaching about how we are to live the Christian life. If that's the second half, the first half, chapters 1 to 3, is about who we are as Christians, who we are as a church, the supernatural power we have to live in the way God calls us to live. Now, the big danger of plunging into the do's and the don'ts and the live this way, not that way, without all the, the stuff in the first half about who we are and the fact that we are who we are because God has made us that way and he's given us supernatural power to live as he asks us to live, the big danger is that you will hear these talks as kind of moralism or rules. We've got to work really hard against that. Let me just come at it a different way in case you haven't got the drift of that. If Ephesians 4 to 6 is full of imperatives, do's and don'ts, Ephesians 1 to 3 is full of indicatives, who we are, who we are as a church, as Christians. And you must never kind of listen to and apply in your life the imperatives without the indicatives. It's really important. We need to know who we are as Christians and as a church, what God has done for us, in us, and the power he gives us to live as Christians. Now, tonight, as we begin this series, taking our time to work very carefully through a few verses at a time, tonight we're going to do the whole of chapters 1, 2, and 3. Now, I learned last night um, from my fellow elders that the longest sermon I've preached in the last 10 years, I've been here 10 years now in Chalmers, was just shy of an hour. It was 58 minutes on God's eternal decree. It sounds just terrible. I'm going to show you that I've learned my lesson and try and get all of this into half an hour tonight on three chapters in Ephesians. You have no confidence at all. Now, it'll be a kind of inadequate attempt to do so. And so what I want you to do is I want to encourage you as we go through this series on Sunday nights, 
if you've got a half an hour spare on a Sunday afternoon, is read some of chapters 1, 2, and 3. Maybe at the start of the new year, you've not settled on a bit of Scripture to read in your personal devotional times each day. Well, let me encourage you, if you're struggling for an idea, a few verses of Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 each day. And that means when you come and listen to the imperatives on a Sunday night, you will have the the indicatives, the who we are in Christ, ringing in your ears. And if you would like some help, any books to help you study guides with 1, 2, and 3, I'd be delighted to give them to you. So that's the dangers, the caveats. Um, We're going to look at chapters 1, 2, and 3 tonight um, with um, a kind of um, a very high uh, bird's eye view. But let's begin in chapter 4, verse 1, which is the link verse between the first and the second half of the letter. So chapter 4, verse 1. And chapter 4, verse 1 just gets the danger. Yeah, and you see what I mean when I read it. I, therefore, Paul writes, Paul is the writer, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And the language is a little cumbersome. Walk, that means live the Christian life individually and in your churches in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So walking is a metaphor for living in the Christian life, day to day, in our lives as Christians, who we are as a church. And we'll see in chapters 4 to 6 that Paul refers to walking a number of times. Walking implies steadiness. And one of the things we'll see is that the Bible is really practical in the Christian life. It doesn't tell you to dash around or to sprint. Walking is, is a very realistic metaphor to describe the Christian life. But walking implies direction. We get somewhere. We mature in our Christian lives. It's not aimless wandering. And the key phrase, the link phrase, is the calling to which you have been called. We are to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And when Paul writes, the calling to which you have been called, he wants you to to, to kind of draw out of your heart and your mind Ephesians chapters 1, 2, and 3, which describe for us the calling to which we have been uh, called. And if you think that phrase means that, that there's something that God has done that you as a Christian have been called into, that's exactly right. God has a plan, and you have been called into that plan and given power and capacity to live as God calls you to live. That's what Paul means by the calling to which you have been called. Now, let's go back to chapters 1, 2, and 3. We did think in our planning meetings this week about reading the whole of chapters 1, 2, and 3, and uh, I have just lost confidence in pulling that off. So um, we're not going to do it entirely, but I'm going to read chunks uh, of it. Um, It's good for me to preach a bit more on Sunday nights, and certainly when I'm listening on Sunday nights, I'm a little tired sometimes, and uh, it'd be good just to to try and keep it succinct as we can. Now, if I were to summarize chapters 1, 2, and 3, um, I would do it like it's laid out in the sheet. Three things that Paul says. He tells us about God's plan, God's call, and God's power. 
God's plan, God's call, and God's power. And that sounds pretty simple. And it is pretty simple in many respects. And I hope that tonight we will grasp that simplicity. God's plan that he calls us into and the power that he gives us and the power behind the plan itself. But it's not quite as simple as that because it's not that chapter 1 is God's plan, chapter 2 is God's call, and chapter 3 is God's power. Certainly, it kind of leans in these ways, but what Paul does, and this makes sense, think of these great big thick ropes you tie up boats with on the docks. And they're made up of, big thick ropes are made up of little ropes. And imagine three ropes wound together to create a big, thick, strong rope. And that's what's going on here. Um, God's plan, God's call, God's power. And what you get in a letter, if you read it, chapters 1, 2, and 3, it speaks about the plan of God, then how we're called into it, and the power we have, then back to the plan of God, how we're called into it, and so on and so forth. So, God's plan, God's call, God's power. Number one, God's uh, plan. Now, let's just read four verses, and I think that just gets us to the very heart of what God's plan is. So, look with me in chapter 1 at verses 9 and 10. Chapter 1, verse 9 and 10, Paul writes about the blessings we have in Christ. One of these is that God has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ. And notice what comes next, a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, that's in Jesus Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. Now, these are key verses in the letter. Let me read them again. As part of the blessings we have in Christ, God has made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, in Jesus Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. Now, we'll come to chapter 3, verses 9 to 10 in a minute. Now, you'll see on the sheet there that uh, in order to understand God's plan, we need to understand, let me just break it up a bit. First of all, God's plan is revealed to us. Notice what he says in chapter 1, verse 9, making known to us the mystery of his will. Whenever the Bible uses the word mystery, it means something that we would not know had God not revealed it to us. And that's what mystery means. And the point of this is that this plan is God's plan that has been revealed to us through the apostles. And Paul wants to make it clear, and he makes that point uh, a number of times in the letter, we'll see that in chapter 3, that the mystery of the gospel has been revealed to him by God to give his readers then and now absolute confidence in the truth of the gospel. It is not speculation as to what God's plan is, it is revelation. Speculation has no foundations. Revelation has eternal foundations, divine foundations. It is God's 
plan. And if you are coming along in the mornings, or you could listen online if you don't normally come in the mornings, we're studying the book of Acts, and the great thing about the book of Acts is the confidence it gives us in God's plan. God's plan. And you embrace Acts and Ephesians together, and it gives us great confidence. It's God's plan revealed to us. Now, what is God's plan that is revealed to us? God's plan Paul says here in Ephesians 1, uh, verses 9 to 10, is to unite all things in Christ. Let's just read it again. Making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. Now, notice along with that that God's plan is a future dimension. See that in the text? Uh, a plan. Here's the future bit. For the fullness of time to unite all things in him. Now, I could uh, show you, if I had time, what Paul is speaking about here. The rest of the Bible would uh, shed a lot of light on this. What Paul is saying is this plan has a fulfillment has an end point. That's what he means by the, the fullness of the time. It is a future dimension. And that future dimension is when God, through his Son, Jesus Christ, will reconcile all things to himself. For Christ is the head. And his creatures, humanity, will be reconciled. One. And the creation will be reconciled, made new. And elsewhere, the Bible speaks about that as the new heaven and the new earth, the new creation, where all things are made perfectly in Christ. And we could go to Revelation 21, for example, and see how Paul, uh, see how John the Apostle speaks about that. So God's plan is to unite all things in Christ, and God's plan has a future dimension, the new creation. But God's plan also has a present dimension. Now, for that, we need to turn to chapter 3 and verses 9 to 10. So, turn forward to chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. Let me read in from chapter 3, verse 7. Paul writes of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan, there you go again, the plan of the mystery something that before God revealed it, we didn't know, but now he has. For ages hidden in God who created all things, here's the plan, verse 10, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now, just have one finger in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, and your other finger in chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. 
Yep. Let's go back to chapter 1, verses 9 and 10 again. Making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in heaven and things on earth. God's plan is to unite all things in him. And there's a future dimension, and that future dimension is the new creation, where all his people will live in perfect harmony with one another, in perfect harmony with Jesus, in a perfect new creation. That's the future. But what is the present dimension of God's plan? For that, we need chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. Let me read it again. Making known to us the mystery of his will. We're meant to connect these two statements, chapter 1, 9 and 10, and chapter 3, 9 and 10. Chapter 3, 9 and 10, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan, not for the fullness of time. He's talking now about the present dimension, that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Now, what's the connection between chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, and chapter 3, verses 9 and 10? Are there two plans, or is there one plan? Well, there is one plan, and there is a future dimension, the new creation, when everything is made perfect in Christ, and there is a present dimension, which is the church, which is in the world to display, if you like, a prototype of what the new creation is will be like. Let me ask you, that's a bit complicated, it's hard to explain, but I think you'll get it. Here's a question, does the future have a church? Answer, the future is the church. The future is the church, that's all there will be in the new creation. And what is the prototype on earth now of the new creation? What is the now of God's great cosmic plan? The church of Christ. Now, when you say the church, what you mean or what the Bible means is local churches. So all over the world, little local churches, little fellowships like Chalmers are scattered all over the world, and they are the prototypes of eternity. If you want to know what eternity is like, you walk into a living church. And when Jesus Christ returns, all these local churches, all these scattered communities that are prototypes of the new creation will be gathered up in the arms of Christ and with all the saints who have died before, will be the new creation in Christ. And so there's a future dimension to God's plan when all things will be united in the new creation, and there is a present dimension to God's plan, the church. Now, if you are thinking, well, all that stuff in the New Testament, in all the letters about being united to one another, and uh, the church being a body with many parts, everything cohering to make the whole, uh, being humble, serving each other, a community of faith where there are uh, all sorts of people from all sorts of different backgrounds gathered together in this one community, this one faith, and you're thinking, well, all that stuff about being united, is that just a, a kind of prototype or a first sight of what eternity will be like? Absolutely. And that's why the church community in which we are a part is a, is a powerful, powerful witness to the gospel. When you proclaim the gospel, and if you, you proclaim the gospel to people and invite them into a community which displays the outworking of the fruits of the gospel, it's a mighty, mighty powerful thing. 
And so here's the deal, Chalmers Church, messy as we are, we are as close as you will get in this city along with the other living churches to the new creation. Does the future have a church? Well, the future is the church. And the church, when we think of the church, we think of the church. I think of the church. You think of the church. And make sure you think of local churches, not the visible church. This is the living church all across the world. When I think of local church that I'm a minister of, you think, well, we've got all our problems and all this and all that. But in reality, because it's full of Christians, it is a prototype. It is closer to anything in the city to eternity. When you come and live in that, you experience humanity reconciled. It's an extraordinary thing. And I think Ephesians will help us not to spot the weaknesses, but to spot the strengths, to spot the wonderful stuff. It's an astonishing thing to be part of a local church. So God's plan, that's God's plan. It is revealed to us. It is to unite all things in Christ. It is a future dimension, the new creation. It is a present dimension, the church. That's local churches like Chalmers. And it is to be proclaimed. So, of course, we speak the message of God's plan to the world. Now, the key verses, chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, and chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. And, of course, if we read around that, there's lots of other stones to go under these big boulders. But they're the two boulders of God's uh, plan. Now, let's go from God's plan to God's uh, call. God's call is to you and me to be part of His plan. God's call comes to us as individuals, and when God calls us to be part of His plan, He calls us to be in His church, in a living local church. And so He calls churches to be part of His plan. Now, what I've done is I've tried to show you God's call uh, by pointing you to the, the five uh, kind of passages in chapters 1 to 3 that describe this. Let's look at some uh, verses. So look with me at chapter uh, 1, verse uh, 4. This is you and I being called into God's plan, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Now, I'll come back to that, and I know people have questions with that, but what that is there for in the text is to show us that the plan that we are called into is, is an extraordinary, complex plan, and that God has called us into that from all eternity. If you sit here tonight as a Christian, you are called from eternity to eternity. You are called out of eternity for an eternal life. God calls us to receive every spiritual blessing. So just look up to chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Verse 5. We are adopted as sons through Jesus Christ. Let's read on, verse 6, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, 
the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purposes of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So God calls us from eternity, and he calls us to receive every spiritual blessing, adoption, redemption, inheritance. Just think how, how big these things are. You're freely forgiven. You're a child of God. You are a co-inheritor with his son. How do we receive this? Chapter 2, verses 1 to 5 and 8 to 10. God calls us from death to life by grace through faith. Just glance forward to that. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of this air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved." Paul makes the same point in verse 8 again, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. And what Ephesians does is it lifts us to the very heights of glory. God calls us from eternity, He calls us to receive every spiritual blessing, but He calls us from death to life by grace through faith. And he calls us, chapter 2, verses 11 to 18, to be one in Christ. Now, we don't have time to read these verses. They describe how the gospel in the Ephesian church did something extraordinary. It reconciled Jews to Gentiles, people who had never been reconciled before in history, and the gospel goes on doing that work in our lives and in our world today, reconciling people that would not otherwise be reconciled. Every other gathering of people where you have a choice to be part of that gathering in the world, there is far more of an affinity between these people than there ever is in a church. We are reconciled to one another because of our common bonds in Jesus Christ. Now, we would love our churches to be more diverse than they are. But that work of God is as strong and as powerful now as it has ever been. God calls us to be one in Christ. There is in this room a complete level playing field 
of who we are in Jesus Christ. There is no one in this room who is a Christian, who is a child of God, and someone over there is a nephew, or it's all one level. All children of God, all sharing the same inheritance, one in Christ. And when God calls us to be one in Christ, he calls us into his church, into a living local church. God willing, we are a church like that, where we are reconciled one to the other. And so you see how God's call to us as individuals, into his plan, we find ourselves as part of the living church on earth, reconciled to God, reconciled to one another, part of God's prototype of the new creation. Now, I hope you've got a sense of that. Let me finish with, uh, I think, the biggest source of uh, realism and confidence in uh, the letter. Sam was praying earlier, um, and when the leader of a new church plant prays that way, uh, he's just giving us a little bit of a window into what's going on in people's hearts. People are excited and fearful. Excited and fearful is a fair combination. One of the things that is all over this letter from start to finish is references to power. Let me just show you that. Just look at the references there. Chapter 1, verse 19. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might? And when you talk about God's plan and God's call, all of it is big stuff. We get that in verse 19 of chapter 1. Chapter 1, verses 21 to 23, speaking of Jesus, He is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And He put all things under His feet and gave Him His head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him, who fills all in all. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 6. The power that brings you from death to life. That's some power. Chapter 3, verse 7. Of this gospel, Paul writes, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of His power. Chapter 3, verse 16. That according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power in your inner being. Chapter 3, 20 to 21. To him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. And then a very, very powerful and poignant reference at the end of the letter. This is into part two, chapter six, verses 10 to 12. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. 
Right, let's stand back and conclude like this. Think of God's plan revealed to us to unite all things in Him with a future dimension, the new creation, with a present dimension, local churches scattered all over the world, prototypes of the new creation. Churches that proclaim this plan to the world. And God calls us out of eternity into His plan to receive every spiritual blessing. He calls us from death to life by grace through faith. He reconciles us not only to Himself but to our fellow humanity. And He calls us into a church where all around us there are other people who have every spiritual blessing, who like us once were dead but are now alive, who like us were far from God but like us have been saved by grace through faith. We are one with them. And we are a prototype of the new creation. And the devil will rage with all his might and all his forces against God's plan being worked out in the world. If you plant a new church, that is the outworking of God's plan. The devil will rile against that with all his energy and all his forces. And when an individual Christian is called into God's plan, well, you need to put on the whole armor of God to stand against him. The power of evil in the world is real and powerful, but there is a greater power. And that greater power is God's power behind God's plan. Listen to this morning's sermon and Acts. Jesus said, I will give you the Holy Spirit. And the gospel through the power of the Holy Spirit will go to the nations of the earth. The apostles died when it got to Rome. It's now gone all over the earth. The power behind God's plan is unstoppable. But it never looks like it, nor feels like it. And when the devil opposes us in our lives, and discouragement comes really to churches, it comes to individuals in churches, God's power, and it may be for you a lack of assurance, God's power in the end is always greater in the individual's life than the power of the devil to discourage. Now that's Ephesians 1 to 3. I'm well under my record by miles. You see when we get to chapter 4, what's chapter 4? Just look across to what's coming next. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all patience and gentleness, bearing with one another, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. It's all about unity. What does it say? Eager to maintain. To maintain what you've been given. The unity in the bond of peace. Now, we'll keep coming back to chapters 1 to 3. I encourage you to read it. Get God's plan, His call, and His power firmly into your minds and hearts. And that'll help us as we 
listen to what he says about practical Christian living. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, this wonderful letter. I pray that in the course of this term, as we uh, study it uh, a few verses at a time, all this practical teaching, that we will stand fast in your plan, your call, and your power, and that we will change individually and as a church, and that we will live lives that are worthy of the calling to which we have been called. And we pray that all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.